from American Awakening, this is Signs of Life. Howdy. Got the American Awakening squad trying to bring a, a dose of reflection, uh, lament, as well as celebration, however we can bring that to y'all. And we're excited because we have a, a special guest, Virginia Cumberbatch, this morning. Virginia's on stage with us here uh, from Austin, Texas. We'll look forward to hearing more from Virginia in a little bit, but so good to have you. Let's kick it off with Jeff Bethke. Jeff, how are you doing? Good. Good to see everyone. I love this book. I love this book. Um, it's fun rereading it for a second time, uh, kind of, you know, prepping every week on Friday. Um, and we are just so stoked. So American Awakening in focus. If you know, every Friday here on the podcast uh, and the stream, we show up to talk about another chapter. And this chapter is you will face adversity. So redeem it. Um, and we're excited because like we mentioned, our guest today is Virginia Cumberbatch. Now I'm just going to read this bio because I couldn't do this justice if I was just to try to riff on it. She's a boss. She's killing the game. So I want to let you know what she's doing. And it says she's a creative scholar and organizer and her work sits at the intersection of community, advocacy, and storytelling. And she has served as a director of equity and community advocacy um, for the University of Texas. Is that the Longhorns, right? I'm from Washington State, so I don't know if that's blasphemy if I can't remember the, you know, uh, Texas school mascots, but I think it is. That's the the, the dark orange people, right? The dark, dark orange school. Um, at Austin's Division of Diversity and Community Engagement since 2016, and she helps drive the university's vision to become less of an ivory tower, I love that, and more of a community anchor addressing issues of access and equity. Virginia is also the co-founder of Rosa Rebellion, which is a platform for creative activism by and for women of color that I got to hear about in a really cool way back November when we are at a retreat together that launched at South by Southwest in 2019. She was born and raised in Austin, and she sits on several boards and is currently serving on the mayor of Austin, Texas's task force on institutional racism and systemic bias, and given her commitment to, to disrupt systemic racism and build resources for inclusive practices, she's spoken at South by Southwest and a host of incredible other universities, platforms, and stages. And she um, is also the author of a book, As We Saw It, The Story of Integration at the University of Texas at Austin. So without further ado, welcome, Virginia. Virginia, how are you doing today? You doing good? Hi, good morning from Austin, Texas, and good afternoon to everyone. I'm doing well. You know, I think um, as we navigate sort of this unprecedented moment in time, um, both in our local communities and as a collective around the world, truly just trying to figure out how we show up in a meaningful way to support people, um, but also continue in our own individual purpose. And so really grateful to be in this space with all of you guys today. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're so stoked you're here. Um, and maybe we'll just start with you then. I mean, I had some questions, but I feel like just rereading this chapter, I think it's just chock full of powerful um, anecdotes. First of all, John, I just love how you weaved in your story to some of these parts. I love how you told your story, the research, the data, some of the other things coming out. But Virginia, just kind of your first read, reading this chapter on adversity, what stood out to you, especially in the and how it applies to this kind of conversation right now in this moment right now for us? Yeah, first of all, you know, John, thank you so much for, for the words and wisdom you've shared throughout this book. And I was excited that this was the chapter we were going to talk about. You know, for me, um, there is sort of a micro sort of experience that I'm going through right now. I actually just broke my ankle and I'm recovering from surgery. And having to navigate that experience in the midst of an already unprecedented moment, right, of quarantine and a pandemic, which none of us have a blueprint for, I saw myself really mourning, like, the loss of routine and the loss of connection and mobility, 
and you know a little bit of vanity i felt like i was in really good shape and i was like oh god a month of bedriddenness and running had also been a source of emotional and psychological support and release and so i will say i was definitely in my feelings the first two weeks out of surgery just kind of like god why would you like help me create this beautiful routine allow me to still be you know, quote, productive and still be a resource in the community only to kind of take it away in this moment of transition and um, uncertainty. Um, and similar to what John brings up, you know, he talks about the how pres the presence of adversity teaches us about ourselves. Um, and it's about this willingness to be participate in that process that shapes us. Um, and the fundamental piece of that is how we psychologically um, enter that space, that meant, and I think that's really connected to our spiritual understanding. And so it's interesting as we were, as I was going through this healing process, literally physically, I likened it to the collective experience we're having as a country and the opportunity we have through the pain, through the chaos, through the trauma of seeing Black lives brutalized and viralized, that God might be calling us into a an opportunity to participate in our collective healing and reconciliation, but that maybe this disruption we're experiencing at this moment, this brokenness, it's always been there, right? We just as a country have never truly grappled with that history and we haven't truly repented. And I think that's another big piece of how we navigate adversity. And as we think about this on a macro level, that we can't have reconciliation and we can't have unity until we've had repentance and we've lamented. And I think if we consider our own individual experiences and our collective experiences, we haven't we haven't gone through that mourning period yet as a country. We haven't gone through the opportunity to truly um, rectify through repentance. And so it seems like at first I was kind of like, all right, God, I feel like I could have like made these connections without breaking my ankle. But in some ways, I'm grateful for this very visceral reminder of what pain um, feels like and what it is to navigate that. Um, and really connecting to this opportunity for like in the midst of our healing and our literal, literal brokenness, God still gives us the opportunity for joy and peace, but it really is about our willingness to participate in that process. That's such a good point. Yeah, I feel like uh, it is funny you say that. I always am thinking that when I'm talking to God of like, couldn't you have just told me this rather than had to make me go through it? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, that's not how it works. So yeah, that's such a good point. And I love what you said, Virginia and John, this is probably the standout part of the chapter for me too, is that adversity is absolutely necessary for deep um, formation of the, the the human spirit and someone who can have a big impact and someone that'll have a pro profound impact on the world and community wise. But it's not adversity for adversity's sake isn't the thing that does that. You actually have to receive it and walk through it in a certain way. And I thought that was a really profound point that you made that I think we're we're seeing right now. Even, even the way that some people are resisting this moment or re resisting a hard conversation or resisting adversity, that's not going to create then the thing that adversity needs to create, right? It did it like Virginia said, it has to be leaned in with repentance, humility, gentleness, um, and then it does do something really special to you. It's like the softening of almost a soil that then can allow something to grow. Um, so I, I love that. But John, is that, is that, is that where you, I mean, what, where was your headspace space at when you were writing this part and now in this moment? Totally. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a thing we talk about all the time here is the fact that, that we, uh, we felt, um, as an American Awakening uh, team, a, a deep 
fracture in the American soul in 2018, 2019, and we anticipated it to be even greater in 2020. Uh, now, we're not Nostradamus or anything. We didn't see the coronavirus coming. We didn't see this moment of Floyd Arbery and the, you know, the collective, you know, uh, breakage, the feelings, the, the trauma. We didn't see it, but we knew it was there someplace already, right? So I guess I guess if you, you sort of it, to universalize the point that um, that uh, you know Virginia and Jeff are making to the moment that we're all in, the problem was all there. the 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 thing we needed to get beyond. We were anesthetizing ourselves going into uh, 2020 with great prosperity. You know, the unemployment rate was lower than it has ever been. Um, you know, we the GDP had been rising ten years in a row, which is you know, unprecedented. I mean, it had been rising at rocket ship rates, but, you know, it, it, it had been ri- on the rise. And, and so we'd undergone like a general anesthetic, I think, as a, as a culture, like the, the badness was underneath the, the, the feelings, the fracture, the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, the alienation, et cetera, et cetera. That's even somewhat independent of, of all these, you know, profound, um, you know, r- racial fractures. It, it, you know, even aside from that, all that stuff was going on. Then you, you pile that on top and there was just all this stuff. Uh, but we didn't know it as fully as we should have. It was it was hard to sort of point that out to too many people. Like, no, no, it's it's tough out there. People are not living thriving lives. And, and uh, there was a a um, uh, play of C.S. Lewis Shadowland, which got turned into a movie with Anthony Hopkins. And C.S. Lewis translates, um, you know, the pain problem to saying, you know, this concept of pain being a megaphone, to shout, you know, use, God using to shout to a you know a broken dying world. And, and but he he in the storyline knew it in the abstract and then goes to the the death of his of his new lover and, and and now he's like I just said it all those times but I didn't really know it right and and so so that transition of like knowing a concept God is good and God is enduring and God will be here and 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 all that sort of stuff but then you go through it and then it's different and 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 uh, that's what we're doing right now and yeah. I would. I had a professor in college that said, uh, "You can't preach till you buried your mother," um, which is like a really interesting, strange phrase, turn of phrase. That's like basically what we're saying here. Like you, you, you can only say certain things when you come from a place of having really been through them. One of the phrases that stood out to me um, in this chapter, you called it unpleasant realities, right? That there's something profound and necessary about actually. Um, coming to terms with and participating in the reality, like minimizing it, numbing yourself to it, right? Probably delays the healing process, right? And even, you know, I, we talk a lot, I talked a lot about this a few weeks ago in the conversation I had at my own church um, around, there was kind of this very quick response around COVID, particularly from the faith community about like faith over fear. And I think it was actually really, um, problematic in the sense that it didn't hold space for people to actually feel both things. You can be fearful through faith, right? Um, And it, I think, in some ways caused people not to actually grapple with the extremity of the reality, which is something like, this is unprecedented, it's challenging, it's going to change our way of life. And again, I think about that in terms of the moment that I that we find ourselves in now that I hope is not just a moment, um, but propels us into a, a new awakening. Like I've, I believe strongly that we are coming into a new consciousness as a, a country, right? Because these are not new conversations. We could argue these conversations have been happening since 400 years ago, right? And we have 
like kicks the can down the road at every turn that there's been possibility, right? Possibility for reconciliation. And the opportunity that we're presented with to actually face reality, in some ways I think wouldn't have happened without this moment of quarantine, right? Because I think to your point, John, in the, the book, that if we try to distract ourselves, right, from that hardship or that pain, right, people who've had the privilege of opting out of the conversation of racial reconciliation and justice are being met with it face to face. And through that opportunity of struggling with discomfort and not being defensive, through the opportunity of navigating this conversation with empathy rather than the opportunity to opt out of it, I think people are going to find hopefully their role in co-laboring and co-agitating in this moment. That's a really, really good point. It it brings up this imagery. I mean, it's a little interesting metaphor from Andrew Murray, you know, a, a writer in the 1800s, but he uses this example for the spiritual life. But I think this will play even into this moment we're seeing now where he kind of talks about the spiritual life in the individual way. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he says, so many of us, we, 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 we run from the cross or you try to wiggle off of it when like you just can't have resurrection unless you die on the cross. And he kind of just says like, you need to give up and, you know, and, and be crucified with Christ. And there's a, there's a weird kind of uh, same kind of um, truth playing there that so many of us, yeah, we, we, any moment of pain we run from, we deter from, we want to get away from, we, you know, try to put as much distance between distance between us and that pain as possible. When at some level, you know, not that we're, you know, asking for it, but if it is coming to us, we can at least know that resurrection is, is on the other side, right? And that the longer we actually delay, we'll never see resurrection. So it's like, you can't have one without the other. And I just think that's really powerful. And that's a beautiful picture. We talk about the the death to self um, trajectory um, a lot here because the death to self bit is what we're all experiencing in some form or fashion over the last four months. If you're willing to allow it to be, um, you know, the, the pain catalyzing to transformation. It, it, just to be clear, I mean, I, I you know, I don't want to be, you know, abstract about this at all. We all hate pain. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, it's it's your physical pain. It's your emotional pain about you know economic conditions it's it's the the pain of this this deep brokenness in, in the american culture and and the, and the racial things we're wrestling with they're all awful and i can name a hundred more and and we've said you know we say often that the only thing that uh, so it actually brings us all together the human condition is we're all we all feel pain we it's true about every single one of us it's what you do with it right and and you can't go over it you can't go around it you can't go under it you got to go through it and who wants to, but you got to, right? Otherwise you don't, you don't actually get someplace different. And, and I will, I will confess and, and, you know, regulars on the show know, I, like, I'm the first to try to distract, avoid, delay, you know, defer, you know, no, wriggle off the cross, as you said, Jeff, but yeah. yeah, But John, you you reminded me, that reminded me of something in page 68. That's one of my favorite parts. You only spent a sentence on it. You kind of just ran right over it, which, you know, slow down, slow down. Why'd you run right over it? You know? But page 68, you talk about when you got booed off stage at the uh, Massachusetts GOP state convention. And I thought that was actually a really profound section where you, because you talk about you just in one sentence, you basically say, you realize after you went through it, it actually wasn't as bad as it, you thought it was going to be. And it was somewhat comical and you were kind of somewhat above it. You kind of were like, oh, that was it. Like, you know what I mean? And and there's something there about adversity, you know, death, you know, metaphorically, et cetera that sometimes our greatest fears or our greatest aversion to adversity, once we actually go through it, it then becomes a superpower in us, you know? And there's a theologian, I can't remember who, who it was, but he was talking about Jesus in the same way, where 
you know, that's why he was so powerful is because the greatest weapon that the Roman Empire could throw at him, they did. And he just kind of goes, he resurrects and goes, is that it? Like, there's nothing left you can actually throw at me now because the greatest tool you had that you've used for centuries to brutalize and terrorize people has been done. I've resurrected. And now what are you going to do? I'm king of the world. Um, and there's something there that I think is, you know, when you walk through it, you just, your perspective radically changes. The 10 year ago version of myself would have been devastated by being booed off a stage. I mean, I, there's no question. I would, I, you know, I would have bounced back. But, but, but you know, the, there's just something about like, you do grow, you do go through pain. And then something stopped hurting after a while, right? Okay, good enough. Well, that, that wasn't really about me. I mean, I, I, you know, who, who likes being booed off stage in front of several thousand people? But all right, see ya. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, it just gives you a perspective. So, but yeah, Marissa, what do you got? No, what I was going to say is my one of my favorite parts of the chapter is actually page 77. We've been talking about the impact of, you know, sort of going through it personally. But I loved, again, sort of stepping back and thinking about what it does when you actually face your adversity head on. I'm just going to read this quote. This is this quote by uh, Brene Brown. We need more people who are willing to demonstrate what it looks like to risk and endure failure, disappointment, and regret. People willing to feel their own hurt instead of working it out on other people. People willing to own their stories, live their values, and keep showing up. I mean, it, it, it's, it's obvious. It's like, yes, but yeah. it's so real mm -hmm. because this idea of staring adversity head on to, to lock eyes with it and just charge it, that's something you really have to see modeled because of the fact that, you know, don't nobody want to hurt because of the fact that, you know, of how much more it takes more, you know, mentally more, you know, spiritually, yeah. it, it takes everything for you to risk the thing that maybe once you get through it, you, you realize doesn't have much of a hold on you. And in this, in this moment, you know, again, I know we've been talking about the people who've been sort of running from things and hopefully, you know, in this awakening, they won't run. But I was also thinking, I mean, like you said, Virginia, we know none of this is new. None of these problems are new. Folks of color have been talking about the same stuff and dealing with the same stuff for hundreds of years. But, you know, there's something that this moment did, even I think with folks of color, this reality that we had honestly just come to accept mm -hmm. that like, you know what? Yeah. Stuff ain't right here. And yes, when you get pulled over, definitely keep your hands up high. You know, when when you get accosted on the street, you know, again, you, know, you teach your kids how to make do so that they live as opposed to, you know, thinking that maybe there's any way that actually things could be changed. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this moment is, yeah, this confluence of like the folks who've been running can't run anymore and the folks who maybe thought maybe there's nothing we can do in the same way that, you know, that I was pleasantly surprised when Barack Obama was elected is the same way that I'm pleasantly surprised that this mm. conversation is continually going on. The marching is continually going on. The, the, the legislation is being thought about in, in, in a lot of different people, people who, who maybe would have never thought about it before. Again, this idea of what does it actually look like to live in a different world here? And what does it look like to be able to, on a daily basis, hope and move and pray and push for something to be different? not just accepting, you know, the lot in life that you have because of what you learn. That's good. I love that. Virginia, would love to hear your thoughts on how to look to leaders who have been through adversity and who can speak into this moment, ones that can lead us into collective repentance and learn from the adversity and cast a new vision, kind of this new consciousness that you were talking about earlier. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think sort of there's two responses to this. I think um, 
in one way, yes, we need to really consider and interrogate the ways in which we may have traditionally not been as open to the diversity of voices and leadership, particularly in the church. Um, you know, this question of like how many you know, white pastors have ever been under the leadership of a pastor of color. Or if we think about the pedagogy and sort of theology and the, the, the written work that supports that, how much of that is coming from the thought leadership and lived experience of people of color. And so I, I, I think I challenge us to interrogate what, how we have shaped our consciousness and our faith um, sometimes maybe in a singular cultural expression. And I think part of this moment is inviting new voices and inviting new lived experiences into the communities and spaces that we have uh, leadership um, uh, roles in. But I, I would also caution us around centering your experience in this, where all of a sudden the burden of educating you becomes the work and labor of, of members of communities of color, where they now are tasked with navigating the spaces and systems that were never built for them and don't easily bend for them. But now they're tasked with educating their full community, their full church, their full circle of friends. And so what will it look like for us to, as individuals, take accountability and responsibility for our own learning, um, for our own relearning, and do a little bit of that work and labor before we kind of have, I think, the instinct, right, to just reach out to um, those in proximity of us. Um, and so I have seen real healing come from that as well, which is what work have you done individually before we're kind of tasking leaders of color to be a part of that education? Um, but then also challenging ourselves to disrupt maybe our typical practices and cultural sort of paradigms with new voices. That's the point of the Rose, Rose Rebellion, right? I mean, does that, is that a fair summary? You're, you're trying to figure out the people to, to, to platform and give voice, um, you know, well ahead of this, but that wasn't that sort of the objective? Yeah, no, it definitely burked out of myself and Megan Harding, who's uh, my co-founder for Rose Rebellion. Um, which is a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. And as co-founders, we both come from a perspective of faith and believing in God. And so that certainly informs our work. But us really creating a platform that disrupts normative practices and sort of understandings. Like if we look at our media landscape, if we look at our policy, if we look at whose voices often get center stage to carry these conversations, um, it is certainly not women of color. And so what will it look like? You know, we kind of, obviously these words have always been a part of the English dictionary, but we have tried to kind of reformulate what the sort of um, picture of co-laboring looks like, what the picture of co-agitation looks like. You know, we often throw around this word of like ally and allyship, uh, which I think in some ways can keep us complacent and sort of stagnant in our posture right? Even in the church, which is like, yeah, we affirm that all that everyone's life matters. We affirm that we're called to love our neighbors. We affirm that everyone is loved in the eyes of God. But what does that look like in action? What does that look like practically in our everyday life? What does that look like in the heart and soul of our churches? And so agitation to us just creates a little bit more of a um, an impetus for action. It's like, we need to be agitators. We need to be irritants. Like that's the only way to disrupt 
these spaces and systems that have not functioned to truly love and value everyone in our communities and countries. And so, and when I think about the image of Jesus in this world, he was an agitator. He was a disruptor. He was a radical presence in the way that the world was functioning. And so how can we call people into that same work? Can I just say, I, I'm really grateful for you. And I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And it actually comes back to something which was probably my favorite part of the chapter of John's book, which was this idea of a redemptive narrative. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, as well as so many others. But um, the way that you're being used to kind of stand in the gaps, you know, this is this is an image that comes up perhaps later in the book. I don't want to spoil anything. But this idea of like Kintsugi, right? Kintsugi is this form of Japanese art. Right, that that actually you you actually smash the pieces of uh you know smash something complete like a vase or something like that into pieces and then reconstruct it um, using some kind of gold liner right and, and actually it's it's the the reconstructed piece that ends up being more beautiful than than what was and so in that same way as in this moment as as kind of our reality our perceptions are the things that we used to um and how we approach the world are being smashed, you know what I mean, by the circumstances we find ourselves. I'm, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing of, of kind of being used by God to be that gold lining, to help reconstruct, right? Because like you said, it's not enough to just be an ally, but how do we be co-laborers, co-agitators, really be radically together in this pursuit of a new whole? One of my favorite books, and we've talked about before, the book Anti-Fragile, and I think I just never forget that imagery he uses in the beginning of that book, uh, that I think is pertinent to this conversation on many layers where, you know, he, he basically said, what, what does he use the difference of between a match and a forest fire, right? And he's like, you know, wind is the resistance, wind is the adversity, wind is this thing that, you know, is stirring up and that a lot of us pain, right? We don't, it's the metaphor for pain. We don't like it. We don't want it. He goes, but you know, when wind comes and there's a match lit, of course, the wind's just going to blow that out. You're extinguished. You're done, Right. But that very exact same thing, when it's a forest fire, you know, makes it inflamed, makes it bigger, makes it more powerful, makes it stronger. Um, and so many of us, I think we have a little bit too much of a match in us and we have a little less forest fire, you know, but we are created. I think your chapter shows that to be more of a forest fire where adversity can only inflame us, make us stronger, make us more beautiful, make us more incredible, you know, and not extinguish us um, and, and, and extinguish, you know. And then back to Virginia's point with the with the agitation, you know, the only reason you would be offended or hurt or skeptical or fearful of any type of agitation as if you're a match. <laughs> you know what I mean? As if you know that that's going to blow you out rather than like, no, this this will inflame me in the best way. This will help me in the best way. This will allow me to grow, to be stronger. And so I love that. I love that. In closing, as we wrap up, anyone got any final nuggets, something they just have to say, want to say? I, I just I just want to say one thing, which is just to say, you know, there's the collective vision of this. There's the community vision of this. And then there's the individual vision of this, right? You know, and you are a redemption narrative. You are, you know, to some degree, an isolation, a redemption narrative. I mean, I'm, we're never in isolation. We're always in community. But there's a storyline, a through line about who you are that God is forging into something. And the thing around you may still be broken. I mean, it may be. I mean, you know, nothing is, nothing's ever, you know, perfect this side of, of, uh, of eternity. Um, but God is working something in you. And we show up every day just to let you not forget that um, because that's why we are here is to help you understand God loves you. God, God's got a storyline for you. God's got a narrative for you. It's going to take you through pain, sometimes tremendous pain, 
uh, and bring you through. So anyway, I, I just wanted to make sure every heard it on the very personal level, as well as, you know, all of our ways to make a, a you know, a collective story more beautiful as well. Yeah. Amen. Virginia, before we close out, anything you want to say, anything you want to shout out, focus on, give something, some spotlight or anything? Sure. Um, again, I'm just super grateful to be in this space with all of you. Um, the, the space that we're in now with y'all's five voices, but anyone who's listening, um, I, I just truly believe this is a time for us all to figure out what our role is in being a part of the work of reconciliation and that it can be overwhelming, um, but just to be um, attuned to the ways in which God is calling you in your own sphere of influence. What will that look like to co-labor in the spaces you're called to? I'm also really excited about some exciting things that we have coming up for Rosa Rebellion um, over the summer, uh, which I'll be transitioning to full-time serving as a co-founder for um, for that platform. Um, so please uh, look out for us on Instagram at Rosa Rebellion to keep up to date with um, some exciting announcements coming up in the next few weeks. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. That was a blast. One of my favorite conversations we've had in the hundred plus streams or whatever we've been doing on this show. <laughs> Um, every single day for the last three or four months. So that was that was a blast and an honor. And if you guys don't know, again, this conversation are coming from and driven from American Awakening, Eight Principles to Restore the Soul of America, John's book. You, you need to get it too, by the way, because one of the best parts of the chapter we just went through is the redemption arc data and all that. And we didn't even get into that. We didn't even get into that. So we need to follow up on that, but you need the book so you can go get that. It's available anywhere. Books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, wherever you get books. Um, and it's been said that this book is perfectly suited to be the post-pandemic racial awakening bounce back playbook. And we believe that to be true why we're having a conversation about it. So consider checking it out and supporting um, the message, the book, and the movement. And don't forget to join us here weekly for our American Awakening in focus features on the live stream and the podcast. We have five more chapters, I believe, to go. If I can do math correctly, I went to public school, who knows, we'll see. And some awesome special guests we're gonna bring along as well. And finally, like Virginia mentioned, she was an incredible guest and you can visit more at rosarebellion.com or follow her at VA Cumberbatch on Instagram. All right, you guys have a good rest of the day. Take care. Appreciate your leadership there uh, on this conversation, Jeff. Virginia, appreciate your leadership in the movement and, and the, the, the voice that you're offering to all of this. Uh, and Marissa, do we have, a, do, do we have an extra, extra film clip to show everybody from Wally? Do we? Oh, my goodness. There you go. Introduce it, Jeff. Take it away. I mean, I don't have much more to say besides it's one of the most cinematic, uh, you know, best films of all proportions in all formats across all <laughs> global places. I'm a Pixar fanatic. I've literally written keynotes about Pixar and given them as presentations and stuff about their brain trust. But Wally is up there with not only Pixar being amazing, but that one is the pantheon at the top of the list of Pixar itself. So without further ado, not to overhype it, here's a clip from Wally. <laughs> out there is our home, home auto, and it's in trouble. I can't just sit here and, and do nothing. That's all I've ever done. That's all anyone on this blasted ship has ever done. Nothing. I'm the axiom you will survive. I don't want to survive. I want to live. Look at that last line. That's fire. Come on. Yeah, we're not going to be like those people on the ship who see our planet going down and we're not going to do nothing. No, we're going to fight to thrive. Exactly. We're not, we're not just trying to survive. We're trying to thrive. That's a t-shirt. I'm getting that made tomorrow. All right, Josh Jacob, uh, let's play us out. And we, we wish you all uh, a wonderful Independence Day weekend in the U.S., uh, and around the rest of the world, well, uh, God bless y'all. Oh, power.
Sarabai sold out to the merchant ships. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit, but my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have is redemption songs, redemption songs. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery Number ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can ever stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand inside and look They say it's just a part of it we got to fulfill the book. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have redemption songs. Signs of Life is produced by American Awakening, a campaign for the soul of America committed to slaying the giant of death and despair in this American moment. Signs of Life is made up of Jefferson Bethke, Dan Hazeltine, Josh Jacob, John Kingston, Joel Searby, Calvin Lee, Christian Palacios, Marina Pappas, Andy Peterson, and me, Marissa Prince. The show is produced from our headquarters in Lexington, Massachusetts, and you can learn a whole lot more about the movement by visiting our website, American Awakening, US. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand inside and look? They say it's just a part of it. We got to fulfill the book. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Is all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Is all I ever have Redemption songs Relevant Podcast Network